Hey guys, Carrie here, and a really exciting announcement before we get into this week's episode. We just passed 7 million downloads on this podcast. Yeah, and that's because of you. That's because of you guys. This has so far exceeded any dream I ever had when I thought of a podcast a few years ago. And I just want to let you know, every time we pass a milestone, because it's you guys who help with this, uh, we celebrate with you. So this week, I want you to, if you're listening to this in real time, follow me on my social channels. So Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, all the links are in the show notes, or you can just find me there. I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff on Twitter and Facebook. And uh, we're giving away Starbucks every day. So you know the drill. If you're in line and you see the little notification that we just posted a gift card, you can use that to buy yourself a really nice frothy holiday drink or a cold shot or whatever you happen to be drinking that day. So anyway, that's just a way of saying thank you. And now let's jump into the latest episode. You're going to love this one with Daniel Pink. Anyway, guys, 7 million downloads. You're crazy. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 233 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I know uh, a lot of you guys... As we interact when I'm on the road and as I read your ratings and reviews and we chat on social and I know you are addicted to productivity. So am I. I mean, how else are you going to get better at what you do, right? Like at the end of the day, you just got to figure out how can I do the best I can with the time I have. Totally get that. Well, that's why I'm so excited about today's guest. His name is Daniel Pink. He is a multiple New York Times bestselling author, much sought after speaker in the business world. And I got to tell you, he helps top performers become even more top performers. I love his books. And I was particularly fascinated by his latest book, which is called When. And, you know, what I love about it is I've got the High Impact Leader course, which, by the way, is coming back in January with some fresh new material, which I'm very excited about. So stay tuned for that. But, you know, the, the impetus or the, the main idea behind the High Impact Leader course I do is that when you do things matter. So naturally, I was very interested when this book came out. So Daniel and I nerd out on the science of timing and why when you do something in the course of a day and how you do it, why all of that seems to really make a difference. So we go all over the place with this. So if you're a morning person, a night owl, everyone else, this is how you can maximize your productivity and effectiveness. It's the science behind perfect timing with New York Times bestselling author Daniel Pink. So I think you're going to love this episode. Guys, a couple of things I want to tell you about that I am very excited about. First of all, next year, what is your mobile engagement strategy? It's just, it's a serious question. And um, Sunday is part of the deal, but it's not the whole deal. Like we have an unprecedented opportunity to connect with people during the week. And that's why I love what PushPay is doing. I think they're the leaders at keeping our industry at the cutting edge of technology. And they got a huge heart for the church. Last year, they helped more than 7,000 customers process billions of dollars in generosity. And they're more than just a giving app. They're a gateway into a mobile strategy for your church. So right now, you can head on over to pushpay.com forward slash carry, that's C-A-R-E-Y, talk to a representative, just sign up for that, and he will have a special offer 
for listeners of this podcast. No obligation, just a chance to talk about whether this is right for you. Make sure you check them out, pushpay.com forward slash carry. And speaking of 2019, you know, as a pastor, you think about people in worship, you got a budget, uh, you, you've, you've got a lot on your plate, but you also want to get people plugged into small groups and you want to help them grow in their faith. So how does that happen? Oh yeah, by the way, plus you got volunteers. Well, the Red Letter Challenge is a new tool that churches are starting to use. It's a 40-day turnkey church campaign that centers around making more effective disciples of Jesus. I've sat down with the author, uh, Pastor Zach Zender, and uh, we had breakfast one day, talked to him all about it, really impressed with this, and have looked through the program myself. I think it's fascinating. He basically studied everything Jesus commanded his disciples to do, really the red letters in the Bible, found five main principles that came directly from Jesus. And the challenge for your church is centered around these five targets. And it results in, so far, a massive growth in engagement in the actions behind the things that Jesus taught about, which is kind of your goal, right? You hope for that. 100% of the pastors, get this, that have implemented the red letter challenge, recommend it. Now, these are some of the things they're seeing when they do this red letter challenge. They see an average of 40% growth in small groups, even in very large churches, which as you know, is difficult. One church in Nebraska, small church, went from zero to 60 people in groups in the first week. Another in Indiana saw 500% growth in their small groups. One pastor said about the red letter challenge, this is more than just a 40 day challenge. It's a simple discipleship tool that will help you encourage your people to not only hear what God is saying, but to apply his words where they live, work and play. Those are just some of the results. So it's not just about small groups. It's about getting your people closer to Jesus and it's resulted in greater worship attendance, giving, and one church has seen a 300% increase in social media reach and engagement when they did the Red Letter Challenge. So right now, you can go to redletterchallenge.com, again, forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to see the church packages that are right for you, small or large, save 10 to 40%. The packages can start with as little as 10 copies, perfect for like a single small group, up to a thousand or more if you have a large church. If you need any other quantities or more information, go to that link, Red Letter challenge.com slash carry. They'd be thrilled to help you. Well, guys, without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Daniel Pink. Well, Dan, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So uh, we found you in, uh, is it true, northern <laughs> New Mexico outside? Yes, is that it? it? Yes. Yes, indeed. I, I, I mean, when you say you found me, it sounds like I was like uh, eluding the authorities, which I haven't That's gotten right. to yet, but no, I'm He's am, been I located in northern New Mexico. Yes. I am I'm actually on vacation with my family. We're in northern New Mexico where cell phone coverage is dodgy and even Wi-Fi is surprisingly bad. So I'm at I'm outside of a Starbucks in the Vegas shopping center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um and it and and as you can see, we're on video now. Your list our listeners can't see that, but there's a giant delivery truck that's just gone behind me. So <laughs> a little atmospherics here along with the content. Well, I'm glad we can hang out and have this conversation and thanks for making uh, some time. So, I mean, you've written a number of really significant, important books that have made a big difference to a lot of leaders, but I really want to spend some time drilling down and maybe even nerding out on your most recent book, When, which I found fascinating. So a little bit of background for some of my listeners, as you may or may not know, I released this course in 2016 called The High Impact Leader. 
And it was really the other side of my burnout. I burned out 12 years ago. I got way more productive, not on purpose, but by accident. And one of the biggest shifts I, I, I made in my own leadership was uh, to do what I, I simply teach is doing what you're best at when you're at your best. And rather than squandering my mornings with breakfast meetings and exercise, I found I was at my sharpest. And, you know, I create content for a living. So when I shifted my writing and my content creation to the morning hours, my productivity soared. Um, you know, and this was totally anecdotal, like it wasn't well researched. It was just a lot of experimentation. And so I've taught this for a while. And, and then your book came out. Uh, what was it, earlier this year, 2018, called yep. When? And uh, you've done all kinds of incredible research into this, uh, some of which corroborates, but I also think a lot further finesses some of the ideas that a number of us has, have been experimenting uh, for a while. So I'm really grateful. So as we begin our nerd out, can you give us just a brief overview of what you researched for the book When?, and, and a little bit about your, your key findings. Sure. Uh, so the book is about the science of timing. And the key point is that it's just that, that we think that timing is an art. We make a lot of our decisions about when to do things uh, in a sloppy, anecdotal, uh, non-evidence-based way. And um, that's what I've been doing for years. And I felt there was a better way to do it. So I started looking at the research, see if there was any research on this. And turned there was a huge amount of research on this question. It was yeah. spread across many, many disciplines from social sciences like anthropology and social psychology and economics to the biological sciences like molecular biology. There's a whole field called chronobiology. And, there, and all these researchers were asking very, very similar questions, but they weren't talking to each other. And so I felt if I went wide enough and deep enough into this body of work, this, this really sprawling body of work, I could begin to piece together the evidence-based ways to make better, smarter decisions, the sort of decisions, carry that you made on your own by observing your own behavior. And I do want to get back to that because observing our own behavior is really central to a lot of this. But the sorts of observations that you made observing your own behavior turn out to be some of them turn out to be true across populations. Some of them not turn out not to be true across sure. populations. But what this allows us to do is understand the effect of timing on our lives. So at the unit of a day, uh, it turns out that when we when we do stuff in a, in a particular day matters enormously more than I ever would have would have imagined. Uh, there's a whole research on on breaks, why we need breaks, why breaks are effective, why breaks enhance performance. And then when you get out of the unit of a day and widen the lens a little bit. We can talk about how beginnings affect us, how midpoints affect us, how endings affect us, how groups synchronize in time, uh, how the very way we um, talk about time and think about time affects our behavior. And so, you know, so there are a lot of there are a huge number of findings that these researchers have, have, have made. But the, the, the key idea here is that we should be making our timing decisions based on science, not based on intuition. So let me let me ask you this then, you know, when you look back at Dan Pink prior to researching and starting in the body of work that became when and Dan Pink today, how are you different? Well, I mean, that's an interesting metaphysical question. I'm not sure that I'm different, but that's what, <laughs> but what, I, what I what I what I do is different significantly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so so, for instance, um, um well, let me take a step back and talk about what we know about about science over the course of a day, because because this yeah. has had a bit. This book, more than any of the others that I've written, carry out, had the biggest effect on 
basically the ground truth, the lived experience, the day-to-day operation of my life, more than the other books that I, all the other books that I've written. So, um, so it's a very, at, at, at the very least, or at core, I guess, I have become much more intentional about when I do things. Um, and, and, so, and so we can start at the unit of a day. What we know about the day is that all of us move through the day in, in three broad stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, peak, a trough, a recovery. During our peak, that's when we're most vigilant. Vigilance allows us to bat away distractions, which makes the peak period the best time for work that requires focus, heads down, focus, mm-hmm. creating comfort. Writing, I think, would be a great example of that. Trough. Usually, for, for most of us, the, almost all of us, the early to mid-afternoon. Terrible time yeah. of day in general. All kinds of bad stuff happens during that day. During that time, that's why we're better off doing doing our analytic, our, our administrative work during that time. All the sort of drips and drabs of answering routine email and filling out reports and all that. Uh, later, uh, later in the day, that's, uh, uh, for most of us, our, later in the day, our mood is increased. Our mood is high, but our vigilance is not so high. And that makes it a good time for um, this period called the recovery, makes it a good time for certain kinds of work that requires mental looseness, uh, brainstorming and things like that. And so basically what we should be doing, and and forgive the long-winded answer to this question, is we should be doing our analytic work during the peak, our administrative work during the trough, and our insight, creative, iterative work in in the recovery. Most of us move through the day in that order. Peak early in the day, trough middle of the day, uh, recovery later in the day. About 20% of us who are night owls, evening chronotypes, uh, they're much more complicated. Uh, they tend to have their peak much, 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 much later in the day. So anyway, all of which is to say, Gary, for me, um, that I'm somebody who is more of a lark than an owl. And so for me, you know, it's key that the morning is the time when I am most vigilant. And that's when I should be doing my writing. And I didn't always do that. Um, yeah. And once I looked at this research, I became very, very intentional. That's one of the key words here. I became very intentional about, about what I did. So, so now on writing days, I will go to my office, which is the garage behind my house in Washington, D.C., uh, get to my office, not super early, you know, like 8.30 or so. Um, and if it's a writing day, I will not bring my phone with me into the office. I will turn off my email. Uh, I'll give myself a certain quota of words, and I won't do anything until I hit that quota. So if I do 800 words on Monday and on 800 words on Tuesday and 800 words on Wednesday and 800 words on Thursday, et cetera, et cetera, that act, the pages actually pile up. And so for me, I become much more intentional about doing my analytic work in the morning. I try to put my administrative work, routine emails and all that kind of garbage in the early to mid-afternoon. And then uh, later in the day, I often will do my interviews certain when I'm on your side of the microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I become much more intentional about, so that's one way this has affected me. I become much more intentional about how I organize my day. What's more, I also... Um, well, let me let me stop there, and then because there, there's so no, many. No, that's more really ways. good. I mean, I'm okay, I, yeah. no, no, no. We are we are getting really detailed and granular with this, and that's interesting. What what was the pre-research Dan like? Like, what was it? What was a day way more haphazard? Uh, you know, prior to doing the research, it was it, it was it was haphazard. Uh, it wasn't. It was. I mean, that's a great word. Haphazard is a really good word because to me, haphazard is in some ways the antonym of intentional. Right. 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 Uh, I wasn't intentional. So that's perfect. Haphazard was what it was. So there would be days when I would go to my office in the morning and and write, but I would have my phone with me. So I check Twitter. I would respond to email. I would start the day by clearing my email. 
Um, and what I was doing in that is that during this peak period, this, this period when I was highest in vigilance, I was squandering that time. And I wasn't conscious that I was squandering that time. Now I'm conscious of squandering that time, of that time. So I don't bring my phone in with me. I don't spend half an hour looking at sports highlights on ESPN.com. I, you know, I, I, I'm much more intentional. I block that, I block that off. Um, and, uh, and, and that has made a world of difference for me. And, and no joke, like, like once I started doing this research, I changed my work schedule and to, to write this very book. And this is, um, it sounds like a joke. It's totally not. Uh, this is the first book I've, I've delivered on time. Every other book I delivered <laughs> late. Really? So yeah. it made yeah. that, and I mean, writing a book is formidable. I don't know. I read it on uh, on my iPad. How many words is is when? Uh, when is about sixty sixty five thousand. Yeah, uh, my book is fifty seven. That's a, that's a big body yeah. of work. I mean, and yours is dense. Actual research. I don't yeah. know dozens, hundreds of studies, uh, lots yeah, of collation. Yeah. yeah, and it, it is it is it is it is hard work. I can see that went into it, and you delivered it on time. Um, a lot of leaders would be nervous about that and say, well, Dan, thank you. That's really nice theory. works for you. You must have a yeah. simple life. Um, what yeah. if my team needs to reach me at 10 a.m. and I'm in the writing den? Like, what, what, like a, There's a lot of FOMO, a lot of fear of missing out that I think right. happens because we're so accessible all the time. Any thoughts on that? Sure. No, I think it's a real, I think it's a real issue. But yeah. like, like so many things in life, it's a, it's a trade-off. I mean, what we know is this. We, you know, from this research, we know that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. They change throughout the day. They can change in material ways. So the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can be really significant. Um, and then, you know, the best time to do something depends on what it is you're doing. So, it's a trade-off. So do you, you know, do you, if you, if you want to make yourself accessible during your peak, overwhelmingly accessible during that peak period, there are going to be costs to that. And so I just want people to reckon with the costs. So being accessible to your team is more important than, than doing your heads down work, than be accessible to your team. But remember that period of peak vigilance is fleeting. And so in many cases, and I don't, you know, in many, many cases, and I've seen this a gazillion times in organizations, on most things, most people can wait a couple of hours. That what yeah. seems urgent at the moment that it enters their brain is less urgent than it than it than it than it, than it really is. And and this goes back to the question of intentionality. I think the bigger issue on, for leaders, the kinds of people who you work with, the kinds of people who you're writing for, you're designing courses for, is on, is is actually the other direction. So how do leaders deal with their team? And so let's say that I have a team of people who do their best analytic heads down work in the morning. I shouldn't be interrupting them. I shouldn't be sending them to a 10 a.m. meeting about the travel voucher policy. All right? right. That's a waste. Of, that's a waste of their time. And I see this all the time. Again, this is just anecdotal. You know, I was in Philadelphia oh, it's like three weeks ago. And this dude, came, this guy came up to me. Hey, I'm a copywriter and I totally understand. I'm a, I'm a lark more than an owl. I do my best writing in the morning, but I can't do it because my boss always has me going to a nine o'clock meeting, a 10 o'clock meeting and an 11 o'clock meeting. And, and it's like, okay, like you got to show your boss this, you got to like, you got to try to educate your boss. I mean, it's, that has a very easy solution. It's the same solution from that old joke where a guy goes into a doctor's office and he says, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, don't do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. like that, 
you know, it's like, so, so, so some of these, so, um, um, but again, I, I mean, not to sound like a broken record, it's all about intentionality. It's yeah. all about intentionality and being intentional about how we make decisions. And this point, let me just rant for 30 more seconds here, but because this issue is so, so important. When you think about things like, think about things like meetings, right? Your lead, the leaders you're dealing with, they spend so much time in meetings, right? Huge portions of the day are devoted to meetings. But when they schedule meetings, they use only one criterion in scheduling meetings. And that criterion is availability. That's yes. it. We don't, they don't say, hey, who's going to be at this meeting? Are there going to be people who are more vigilant in the morning? Are there going to be people who are more vigilant later in the day? What kind of meeting is this? Do we want people to be locked down and focused and you know intense and analytical? Is this purely an administrative meeting? Do we want people to be looser and more iterative and able to brainstorm? We don't even ask those questions. We just say, hey, is Juan available? Is Jose available? Is, is Janine available? Uh, and is conference room 3C open? And so that's, again, to your point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this word. That is not being intentional. That is being haphazard. And haphazard, we're talking antonyms and synonyms. The, you know, a synonym for haphazard is non-strategic. Yeah. This is, this is so helpful. And you are preaching to the choir on this end of the microphone, I can tell you. I was so excited to delve into this research because I think it just it validates and supports so much of what I think a lot of us have always suspected. Um, but you kind of think, oh, that's idiosyncratic. That must just be me. And what surprised me is, as I taught this to thousands of leaders, they're like, nope, me too, me too. And now there's actual like comprehensive research to go with it. One of the questions right. that does come up, and I want, really want to dig, do a, do a deep dive into the research, uh, but since you raised it, I want to ask it now. Uh, not everybody's a boss. Not everybody's like you and me. I pretty much get to call the shots on my calendar. You probably have a yeah. fair degree of autonomy with your calendar. But we hear from people almost every week who are in the middle of organizations, who are second in charge, who are bottom of the totem pole, who say, yeah, I don't like, great, good for you. You know, decide you're going to write till 10 a.m. and not get distracted. That is not my life. If you're yeah. not in a place of control or influence, do you have any tips for leaders as to how they can create a more conducive environment? To the to the leaders, not to the individuals. No, to the okay, to the person. Sorry, I should say to to the people yeah. who are not in that decision making seat who have to go to the okay. ten o'clock meeting rather Got than it. call the Got ten o'clock meeting. It. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Um, uh, yeah, no. So it's so it's um it's uh it, it's tough, and and the reason yeah. I asked that follow up question to you is that to me, it should be the leader's problem. But but we'll get to that. We'll talk about what the individuals can do because many people are not, as you say, absolutely right, Carrie. They're not in a position where they can, they have full discretion over what they do and, and how they do it. I think that, that yeah. in that case, it's important to work the margins. It's important to work the margins. So what does that mean? Um, that means that, um, uh, okay, you got to suck it up and maybe go to the 10 o'clock meeting. All right. Let's say, let's say that you're a person who's most, who, who's do, who does their, their analytic work better in the morning. Okay. I want to get to people who, who don't follow that because 20% of the population has a very different pattern. And I don't want to neglect those people because they're neglected so much already. But let's focus yeah. on 80% of us who basically move through the day, peak early in the day, trough uh, middle of the day, recovery later in the day. So like people like you, people like me. So let's say that I'm on a, I'm on a, let's say I'm a copywriter. Okay, here we go. I'm a copywriter. And like that, that, that guy who I talked to, my boss always makes me go to a 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock meeting. Right? That's a big pain. 
it's a waste. First thing that I should do is that if I'm free from nine to 10, don't check your email. Don't do your, don't do that routine administrative work. Don't do the sorts of things that many writers like to do. Oh, I need to clear the decks first. All right. Take that, take what you have. You might not have three hours of heads down vigilant time. You might have only two hours. Maybe you have only one hour. Um, don't squander that. It's even more precious. So that's just a sort of a heightened, it's a heightened degree of, of intentionality. That's one thing that you can do too. You should talk to your boss. Right. And, and, and one of the things about talking to bosses that I always advise people that I've used in my own life is this. When you talk to a boss and you want to make a change, always put it in terms of the boss's self-interest, not your self-interest. All right. Oh, Good. I would feel a lot better. I'm much more comfortable. Hey, boss, I'm really a lark. And I don't, you know, <laughs> just go in there and say, like, if I'm the copywriter with a 10 o'clock meeting, I say, listen. Maria, boss, here's the thing, right? I have skirted the deadline big time on some of these less writing projects, all right? The reason I'm skirting it is because it's pretty clear to me that I do my best work during this 9 a.m. to 12 12 noon period. And so this 10 o'clock meeting, I understand why we're having it, but is there any way that I could skip it once a week? Is there any way that I could miss it twice a week? Um, because what I don't want to do is I don't want to deliver copy late to you. All right. That's what, that's how I would do it. So put it in terms of the boss's mm-hmm. self-interest. Now where this becomes a huge issue. And I want to get these folks in here where this becomes a huge issue is with people who are in the 20% who have what, what I call a quote, have evening chronotypes, people who are owls. Right. They Night don't owls. follow. Exactly. They don't follow this pattern, right? They have, what we know about owls are very complicated but it's one-fifth of the population. It's one-fifth of the workforce. And owls do their best heads-down vigilant work much, much later in the day, much later than the, in the day that you and I are talking. 4 p.m., 5 p.m., 7 p.m., 9 p.m. And the typical world of work is so antithetical to how they, how they work. But let's say they can't avoid it. And let's say that I'm an owl um, who has to go to, say, let's dial it back a little bit, to a 9 a.m. meeting. Yeah. Okay. If you talk to owls, that's a miserable at nine o'clock in the morning. They're barely awake. Okay. Let's say you can't avoid it. This is another example of how you can work the margin. So let's say I'm an owl. I got to go to this nine o'clock in the morning meeting. It's my suboptimal time. I'm absolutely at my worst, but I can't avoid it. What do I do? So here's what, here's some suggestions for for the owls out there, because I'm assuming one fifth of your audience is owls, Mm -hmm. right? So here I am. So now I'm an owl. I got to go to this stupid 9 a.m. meeting that Maria makes me go to all the time. The night before, let's say this meeting is on Thursday, Wednesday night, all right? I'm at my peak, 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock, right? At my peak. I'm going to take 15 minutes and I'm going to think about this horrible 9 o'clock meeting. I'm going to think about what do I need to accomplish at this meeting? What information do I need to gather? What questions do I need to ask? What commitments do I need to secure? I want to think very hard and strategically, what do I need to get done at this meeting at nine o'clock in the morning? And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to make myself a checklist, right? I'm going to make myself a checklist. Literally, you can put it on a card. You can put it on your, your notes program in your phone. What are the three questions I need to add? The three things I need to do at this meeting. That way, when I'm at this meeting in my suboptimal time, I can look at my checklist and make sure I have it. I'm not forcing my groggy brain to retrieve that information during my suboptimal time, I'm thinking strategically during my optimal time, and I'm importing that to this time. 
Uh, the other thing that I would do if I'm if I'm an owl uh, and I'm at my suboptimal time, and I, and I actually do this myself, is, is before that nine o'clock meeting, don't go. You know, say so you're driving to work. Don't uh, drive into work. Race into the garage. You know, uh, uh, press the elevator and go straight into the meeting. What I would do is I would try to take a five minute walk outside before that meeting. Right. We know about that. There's a lot of research on the replenishing effects of breaks. I would take a five minute walk outside uh, for that meeting, some kind of break beforehand to restore a little bit of my mental acuity, restore a little bit of my mental energy. Um, and so um, that's that. But what I want and I think the goal of the book is to have is, is for people inside of workplaces to have conversations like and to be and be as strategic about when we do stuff as we are about what we do, how we do it, who we do it with. So this is so good. So for people who are in the senior seat listening, you've got to dial in on this stuff because you're not getting the best out of your people. Absolutely uh, for right. everybody, everybody listening, we've got to figure ourselves out. I did it the hard way, reconstructing over a few years after burnout to discover that if I pay attention to exactly what you are talking about and what you've researched, I can, I can, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say I've 10x'd my productivity and effectiveness as a leader. Certainly double, tripled, that's, that's easy. That's a no-brainer. Just by shifting when I do things, paying attention to when I'm sharp or not, but Dan, what I'd love to do right now is situate everyone because we've been talking about larks and owls, and then there's a middle category as well. So can you just help? Um, yeah, just help everybody find themselves in the story. So quick diagnosis for like, oh yeah, I'm a lark. Oh yeah, I'm an owl. Oh, I'm in the middle. There are a couple of assessments out there that are scientifically validated assessments that people can take to determine. Well, this again, it's called your chronotype. And you have to think about it as a, as a scale. On one side, super morning people. On the other side, super evening people. Um, and what we know about the distribution along that spectrum is about 15% of us are very strong larks, uh, morning people. About 20% of us are very strong owls, evening people. And as you say, about two-thirds of us are in between, uh, what I call third verse. And so, so you, can, you can look online for the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire, the MCTQ, there's also something called the MEQ, the morning eveningness questionnaire. These are the typical kinds of psychological, biological assessments where you answer a battery of you know, 20 questions or something like that, and it gives you uh, your place on the spectrum. There's also a very easy, there's an easier back of the envelope way to, to figure this out, and it has to do with the file. I'll give you an example from my own uh, experience here. So for the people who are listening to this, we can work on it right now. So think about, I want you to think about what's called a free day, a free day. A free day is a day when you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. You can go to sleep and wake up anytime you want. So it's sort of like the week on. I'm, I'm away with my family this week. I have a free day. I don't, I don't, I didn't set an alarm clock. I don't have to be in bed at a certain time. I don't have to get up to go to a meeting or take a trip or anything like that. So on a free day, when would you typically go to sleep? When would you typically go to sleep? So for me on a free day, I would typically go to sleep about midnight. All right. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Then you say, well, on a free day, when would you typically wake up? Again, you don't have an alarm clock or anything like that. When would you typically wake up? And I would typically wake up, say, at eight in the morning, 8 a.m. Right. And then you look at your and so what you're trying to figure out here is on a free day, what is your point of sleep? What is your midpoint of sleep? This is the key. So if I go to sleep at midnight and wake up at eight, my midpoint of sleep is four, 4 a.m. Yeah, 4 a.m. Right. 
All right. And then, so here's what we know. If your midpoint of sleep is 3.30 or earlier, you're a lark. If your midpoint, probably a lark. If your midpoint of sleep is 5.30 or later, you're an owl. Um, uh, if your midpoint of sleep is in between, you're a third bird. So at 4 a.m., I'm basically a third bird. I'm larky. I'm sort of on the larky side of the, lark side of the spectrum, but I'm larky. I'm not a full-fledged lark. So for me, what I know there is that, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to move through the day, peak trough recovery. Peak early, trough in the middle, recovery later in the day. I'm not one of these super hardcore larks who, you know, can, you know, is just kind of naturally get to the office at 6.15 a.m. Yeah. and start working. I'm a, you know, I'm asleep at 6.15 um, but I'm at the end of my sleep. And so for me, it's like not anything crazy. It's like, you know, for me, if I get to the office at say eight 30, uh, and my commute is modest as 22 steps. So if I get to the office at eight 30 and I can do heads down work from eight 30 to noon, three and a half hours, I can get a heck of a lot done during three and a half hours of uninterrupted heads down work. Um, and so, uh, and so that's it. And then I try to move my my administrative stuff to the trough period in the middle of the day. And then I'll do sort of the more iterative creative stuff uh, later in the day. That's super helpful for people. And uh, again, you've got that in your book. I did my chronotype and I'm an early lark. I'm on the front end of the really? lark thing. I, I will wake really? up on What's... a free day. Yeah, I'm trying to remember now. Um, and it's on the same device. I've got these questions on because it's a, it's, I bought the ebook uh, for easy reading on flights. But long story short, I think my midpoint was 2.30 or 3 a.m. Like normally I'm up okay. at 5, 5.30, yeah. even on a day off, wow. which puts me at the wow. early stage of the yeah. lark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what time would you typically get into your office? Seven? Uh, well, I work from home. Uh, so yeah, okay. I'm, usually, I'm usually working by 6 a.m. Uh, I have a wow. quiet hour, just a real quiet hour. I'm working by 6 a.m., but by, you know, by 3 o'clock, I've done all my productive work that's really in me for the day. And wow. I might yeah, phone it still, in for a meeting. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's nine hours of work. Yeah, it's too much work Maybe. sometimes. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, wow. I, I get a lot done. And, uh, you know, for me, it, it works out fairly well. Now, I'll take breaks in there. And we're going to get to naps. I mean, so, your stuff on naps yeah. is some of the best stuff I've ever read. And uh, I want to get there. But let's talk about the trough. Because everybody experiences it. And most of us, third birds and larks will experience that you're arguing somewhere in the early to mid afternoon where it's, you know, speakers call it the post carb lunch slump where you don't want that afternoon slot in a, in a conference because the audience is going to be half asleep, struggling to stay right. awake. That's when you're right. pinching yourself in a meeting, trying to keep yourself awake, trying to stay focused exactly. on a phone call. Um, exactly. But you have some staggering statistics, actual research about that it's not only suboptimal, that, that the trough is dangerous, like medically yeah. dangerous, road safety sure. dangerous. Can you walk us through some of that research so people understand how human performance varies? The research is overwhelming. I mean, I'll just give you a, give you a taste. But so um, what we know is that um, uh, basically every domain, so you mentioned healthcare. So what we know yeah. is that uh, for instance, anesthesia errors. Anesthesia errors four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. Look at something like uh, hand washing in hospitals. Massive deterioration in hand washing in hospitals in afternoons. Uh, look at uh, colonoscopies. Doctors find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams. 
uh, go to education. Uh, what we know about, uh, you know, basically uh, younger, especially younger students is um, there's a massive drop in standardized test scores when students take tests in the afternoon. Um, uh, there's a really important piece of research from the LA Unified School District showing that uh, students who take, uh, elementary school students who take math in the morning learn more, have higher grades, higher test scores than students who take math in the afternoon. Uh, some very, there's other metrics of corporate performance that, that show a big decrement in, in the afternoon. You mentioned auto accidents, really important here. Um, a really important, uh, it's somewhat complicated because with auto accidents, the more, auto, the more cars there are on the road, the more auto accidents there are going to be. Right. Um, okay, so you have to control for cars on the road. Once you control for cars on the road, the most dangerous time to be on the road is 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. Second most hmm. dangerous time to be on the road is 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. So what we know is that there is this period of the day when for most of us, it's really, you know, as you would say, as you call it, it's really, really, really suboptimal. And so what we should be doing is we should try to be doing our least important work during that period. And we should be taking more breaks. Now, it's, as it's, it's not always possible to, to cordon all of our least important work in that period. So when we put it in there, we have to recognize, oh, wait a sec. You know, it's like, listen, it's like driving in bad weather. You drive in bad weather the same way you drive on a sunny day? No. You say, oh, my gosh, there's bad weather out here. I have to drive a little differently. And that's the way to think about this period in the early to mid-afternoon for most of us. It's like bringing the rain. Slow down recognize that you're more likely to have a problem during this period and just be, be intentional about it and also take more breaks. Yeah, it was, it's what's fascinating to me. I mean, a lot of us who would listen to this podcast, we do the kind of stuff you and I do. Not too many people die from reading a bad book. You might put it down after, you know, if you miswrite. It's like it's not the end of the world. But I mean, if yeah. you're in medicine, like you make the case that no, people actually die because uh, they're operated on during the trough or they got an infection because uh, nurses and doctors become less vigilant about washing their hands in the afternoon than they were at Absolutely. 8 a.m. in the morning. And that those those studies are all adjusted for all the variables too. So it's not like the smart kids tested in the morning and the dumb kids tested in the afternoon. It's it's just right. it's 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 staggering. And so for a lot of us in the office, um, you start to make some prescriptions about what to do in the trough. Can because we all know that you know you're struggling yeah. to stay awake. You fell asleep at your desk. You you can't yeah. study. You can't think. How do you adjust right. for that so that, you know, because you got you can't just go home and have a siesta, although you almost make that case. Um, yeah. What do you do? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, again, part of it is where you have the discretion, put your least important work in there. You don't have to like like uh, you don't have to be super sharp to answer many kinds of routine emails. I'll give you I'll right. give you an example from my own life today where I where I where I made this mistake. So this is a weird, weird week for me because I'm actually not working. But um uh, so I did something today during my peak period um, at like 10 o'clock in the morning that I would that I should never have done. It was basically uh, some conference that I'm going to fill out a form that has like your contact information and your bio and all that kind of stuff, purely administrative. And I took, you know, 15 minutes at 10 o'clock to do that. That's a stupid thing to do. All right. I can I should have done that during that trough period. So anything that's administrative that doesn't require massive brain power, do that during that that trough period. The other thing that you should do once you do is. Is breaks, um, and what we know about breaks is pretty remarkable. There's a whole uh, in this book. I actually uh, initially had planned to write about breaks as a component of the chapter on the hidden pattern of the day, 
when I got into the research, I said, holy smokes, this research on breaks is really vast and really important. And it actually grew to have its own chapter because it was, I thought it was, the research was so compelling and it had so many ramifications for our day-to-day life. So what we know about breaks is that we should be taking more of them uh, and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And this is, I think, the really interesting part. We know certain kinds of breaks are more restorative. One thing we know is it's, it's something is better than nothing. So even a literally a one or two minute break is better than not having any break at all, which is mm-hmm. pretty much how I had operated in the past. So going back to one of your earlier questions, I was someone who never took breaks. Um, so we know something is better than nothing. Uh, we know that um, moving is better than stationary. So the extent to which you can move around, you can walk or something like that during your break. Uh, outside is better than inside. Um, social is better than solo. So breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on our own, even for introverts. Uh, and we also know that you need to be fully detached. So, uh, so at an office, um, take a break. You know, take an afternoon break with somebody. Don't talk about work. Talk about something else. And definitely, definitely, definitely do not bring your phone with you. You need full detachment. And what we know from the research is that if we take these, you know, literally a 10 or 15 minute break once or twice in the afternoon and configure it in the way that I just described outside moving with somebody else, um, that's a good way to mitigate some of the, the, the dangers of that, of that trough. And, and you see this research in medicine where um, there, there, where doctors are taking, surgical teams are taking certain kinds of breaks to make sure that they have everything set. You see this in the research, uh, some of the research on education, where one way to get those declining afternoon test scores back up is to give kids a 20 to 30 minute break before they take the test. And that generally raises the, the test scores. And so what we have to do is we have to get past this idea that I had for many, many years, that, that breaks are a concession, a sign of weakness, an uh, indicator of a lack of seriousness, uh, a sign of wimpiness, uh, and instead say, hey, breaks are part of work. Breaks are part of performance. And as always, with my, with part of my broken record thing, we have to be intentional about that. And the way to do that, I found, is to schedule your breaks. And so... What I do on days when I'm in my office is I will schedule in the afternoon, say 1.30, take a walk around my neighborhood or 4 o'clock. My wife also works at home. Maybe 4 o'clock, we'll go out for a walk at 4 o'clock, 15 minutes. And it makes a huge difference. And the evidence is pretty overwhelming about breaks. I, I really think that breaks are um, that once the science takes hold, we're going to think, oh, my God, remember those old days where we never took breaks because we thought it was it, it hurt our performance. What were we thinking? In the same way, it's like, remember that time 15 years ago when we thought people who pulled all-nighters were heroes, and now we know uh-huh. they're fools? Uh, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. So just so people are crystal clear, uh, give us a picture of what your mental energy or just even your physical energy, you know, you're in a trough, you're exhausted, you're tired, you're, you're yeah. fighting fatigue and focus and all those things. How restorative is, let's just pick a 15-minute walk around the block without your phone? Yeah. Like, do you, do you get 60% of your energy back, 30%? Like, what, what is it like for the average person? I, I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't think we know at that level of specificity what it does. What we know in general is that on, along many measures, uh, it can improve performance. So we know in hospital right. settings that it can reduce errors. So for instance, give you the, let's go back to that hand-washing study. It's a brilliant piece of research done by uh, Katie Milkman at Penn and 
Bradstotts at uh, UNC, uh, what, what they saw was that hand washing declined significantly in the afternoon. Um, but when the nurses had, when they gave nurses social breaks, that is breaks with other people, it climbed back up. I can't remember exactly. So it didn't climb Without back up telling to like, them kind of to wash their hands, it just sort of automatically no, did. Exactly. Because exactly. Um, and they weren't breaks to wash their hands or breaks to go out for a walk. Uh, but that restored energy. You see it. You see it in the research on the on, on uh, one of the important pieces of research on on testing showed that, as I said, giving these kids a twenty to thirty minute break actually um, actually had a pretty profound effect. It raised their it raised their scores even a little bit higher than than the, than the norm. So I don't think there's a universal number out there, but right. we know it's going to be it's going to be positive that you're going to perform better. If you take that 15 minute break and it's a kind of math that's sometimes hard for us to understand. It's like basically taking 15 minutes off is going to allow you to get more done, even though it seems counterintuitive. Uh, we say, oh, well, you know, if I take a break, that means I'm going to get less done. But actually, in most cases, taking that short break means you're going to get more done ultimately. You actually argue in the book that um, schools that are cutting recess and shortening lunch breaks should reverse that. And uh, oh. Say more about that, because that was my favorite part of school, like I'm sure a lot of listeners. Here's the thing. Okay, let's go. Let's, let's talk about this in purely scientific terms, yeah. all right? So surely we, what, here's what we know from the science of breaks. I gave you the, the, the what we know about breaks. Uh, what are the best kinds of breaks? What are we, you know, something's better than nothing. Social's better than solo. Outside's better than inside. Moving's better than stationary. Um, fully detached is better than semi-detached. I basically have described recess, right? Yeah. It's outside, it's moving, it's social, it's fully detached, okay? And, um, and what we know from some, what, what, what we have to get past here is this idea that breaks are a deviation from performance. It breaks are a concession. They're not. And, and the way to look to this is through, I, I think, through athletes. You know, you have athletes who train. It's not like they don't take breaks. Of course they take breaks. They would think yeah. it's insane not to take breaks. And so it's the same. You know, you look at the work of Anders Ericsson, the, the guy who came up with the idea of deliberate practice. He has this really important piece of research, fairly well known about elite performers in music. And elite performers, elite violinists take more breaks than the ones who are less elite performers. And so we just have to get past this notion that breaks are a deviation that breaks are a concession. That breaks are soft. They're not. They're part of our. They're part of our performance. And there's some really, really intriguing research in um, some lower-income school districts in Texas showing that they're actually raising test scores by adding recess. Wow. Um, uh, yeah. You know, because here's the thing: human beings are not. I mean, it's quite. It's it's at some level, it's like actually not that complicated. So you know, a lot of your listeners, you know, right now could be recharging their mobile phones, right? We always recharge our mobile phones, but we don't, we, we, we think that, oh, we don't need to recharge ourselves. Of course we do. Yep. Of course we do. Um, it's this sort of foolish notion about, about uh, human capacity. Like we're just not built to be all on all the time. And, and so truly, I actually think you would see, here's the thing, if there, if there are only two takeaways from this book out there in, in corporate America. One, if we start scheduling meetings strategically rather than in this haphazard way that we've been doing it, start scheduling meetings thinking, who's going to be there? What kind of chronotype? What kind of work are we doing? Have intentionality about meetings. And if everybody, if every workplace in America has 
says, hey, everybody, here's what we're going to do at our workplace. Every afternoon during that that trough, I want everyone to go take a, 50, a, a 10 or 15 minute walk outside with someone they like talking about something other than work. We do those two things. I think at 0.5%, we add half a percentage point on GDP. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's another. Con- that, that's, that's some fuzzy math there. I'm just sort of. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. But no question that it would, it would actually improve performance. No, I, I love this. You're you're really speaking to my heart and also to my mind. Another conversion experience you had doing the research, writing the book, is you used to hate naps. Not so much anymore. And you invented this term. I don't think I wrote it down. I may not get it right. Is it the naspresso? Uh, or nah, it's, close. it's actually not my term. It's been out there for a while. It's called a nappuccino. And nappuccino, that's even better. Yeah. Basically, it's basically a way to... It's basically the the ideal nap, and here's what we know about about naps. First of all, naps are pretty good for us. Yeah. Uh, they 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 uh, restore mental energy. They restore not only mental energy, mental acuity. Um, but the ideal nap is surprisingly short, shorter than I would have ever imagined, between ten and twenty minutes long. Um, you go beyond twenty minutes, you begin developing what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get when you wake up from a from from a nap. So and now from 10 to 20 minutes is really ideal. It's, it gives you that restored mental acuity without any cost of grogginess. But there's a way to turbocharge that, as you say, Kerry, which is, um, and, I've, and I've done that. I don't do this every day at all, but I, but I do do this. So what I will do is I will, um, I will set my alarm for 25 minutes, countdown time, or my, my, my phone, countdown time on my phone for 25 minutes. Um, then I will sit in a chair in my office. I'll put on my noise-canceling headphones, the very headphones I'm wearing right now, Put on my noise canceling headphones, set my alarm for 25 minutes. But right before that, I will sort of at that moment, right before I set the timer, I will just, just gulp a, a big cup of coffee. Like I'll just make myself a cup of coffee and I'll plunk some ice cubes in it and just, I'm not doing it for enjoyment. It's purely medicinal. Gulp, 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 gulp that cup of coffee. Okay. It seems kind of weird. Then I'll close my eyes. At this point, I can usually fall asleep in 10 minutes. So I see, so I take 10 minutes to fall asleep. Alarm goes off in 25 minutes, so that's 15 minutes of napping, right in that sweet spot. Um, so I've got the ideal length nap, but I've turbocharged it because it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to enter our bloodstream. And so remember, I had that nap, that coffee right at the beginning, um, but so when I'm waking up, I, I get the boost of the ideally timed nap plus the added benefit of a caffeine boost, the nappuccino. And there's, there's actually a lot of good research on this um, showing it. Um, uh, there's one paper that, 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 that does describe it as the ideal nap. What's interesting to me anecdotally about all of this is that when I wrote about this, I've gotten so much email from two groups of people, uh, graduate students or former graduate students and people serving in the military or people who had served in the military talking about how they had used that technique. They thought it was really weird. They thought they were the only one who did it. But um, the coffee, the nap, um, like I've had so many people say that's how I got through graduate school. Um, that's how I was, that's how I was able to survive, you know, a certain stretch of, of, uh, you know, really demanding work in the military. The Nappuccino best, uh, best phrase ever. And, uh, I have done that anecdotally and actually before this interview, about a half hour before this interview, I took oh, really? a 15 okay. minute nap. Yep. And I've been doing that for years. You're in the afternoon. Yeah, you're in the afternoon. Yeah, I'm in the the afternoon. You guys are still morning where you are. But that, that I find, you know, and I use the analogy of plugging your phone back in. If I take a a 10 to 20 minute nap, it can be as short as five, uh, depending on the time I have available. 
it is like my phone goes from 40%, not to 100, but maybe to 80 or 90. And I'll take 80 or 90 at three o'clock in the afternoon. 2X, man, I'll totally take that. Yeah, yeah. And so, so you're a boss now. And, and we got a lot of leaders listening who do have control. What advice would you have for a boss? You've already said, give your employees a 15-minute break, give them reschedule time. Um, what does this, like, what are some little hacks that employers can adopt right away that will boost productivity and ROI for them? Well, I mean, in the course, you know, in, the, in, a, in a given day is basically, you know, figure out people's chronotype. Let, let people figure out their chronotype and, and let them do the right work at the right time of day. That's the most important yeah. thing. Two would be schedule meetings strategically rather than in this hazard way that we typically schedule them. Um, three would be think of breaks as part of performance, not a, uh, not, a devi- not a deviation from performance. I think those three things right there over the course of a day are, can have, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, really dramatic effects on employee well-being and on um, and on employee performance. Can we, uh, let's go back to the three chronotypes again, the third yeah. birds, the owls, and then the larks, those of us who like to get up early. Can you walk us through, because your book subtitle is Perfect Timing, um, what does an ideal day look like for each type in a nutshell? Uh, you, we've hinted at it, we've skirted around it, but I just, I want to drill down. Well, no, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's pretty simple. So let's say that you're so so um, so if you're a lark or a third bird, you should be doing your 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 analytic work uh, in the morning. Um, and analytic work is work that requires focus, uh, where work that demands vigilance. And, and you know, again, um, uh, if we think about writing and the people who are writing out there, is it, the greatest enemy of writing is distraction. When you're writing, the whole world is conspiring to distract you. And so you want to be at your, you want to do that kind of work at your point of max, at, 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 the, at the lowest point of distractibility, which is when we're highest in vigilance, which for most of us is the morning. So the larks and the, the larks like you, you're going to want to start your analytic work early, pretty early. The third bird's like me, somewhat early. All right. Um, uh, and then again, during, so, so, so in the morning, again, people have to, going back to, I think what you said originally, Carrie, is that we have to be observant about our own behavior. So I can't go there and say everybody should start working during their heads down vigilant work at 7:35 a.m. No, there's going to be var- there's going to be variant at that level. There's going to be a lot of variance. So, so people have to experiment. Am I better off doing that analytic work at eight? Am I better off starting at nine? Am I better off starting at you know 6 a.m. like like you? Um, so again, analytic work requiring vigilance early. Uh, almost all of us have that trough in the middle of the afternoon, in the early to mid-afternoon. So this period between, again, it's going to vary from person to person, but this period period roughly somewhat, some section of, say, 12.30 to 3, all right, some section of that, you're going to see big drops in mood, big drops in performance. And so you have to say, okay, if I, if I, can, if I can do less important work during that period, that's what you do. If I still have to do important work during that period, I have to be intentional about taking breaks. I have to be aware of what's going on and take some steps to make sure that the downdraft is less than it ought, it ought to be. Later in the day, again, for larks and for third birds, um, is the recovery period where your mood is back up, your vigilance is lower, and that's when you should be doing more iterative kinds of work. So you're solving problems that don't have obvious solution. You're brainstorming. You're, 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 you're coming up with new ideas, things that benefit from some amount of mental looseness 
So again, analytic work in the morning, administrative work in the early to mid afternoon, recovery period late in the afternoon, early in the evening, more kind of creative work. Now, I want to just shout out to our owls out there because it's yeah. very different. All right. So there isn't a single pattern here. So for owls, right, owls are very complicated. And if you look at even the behavioral characteristics of owls, owls have um, uh, they're, they're more prone to uh, mental illness, addiction, uh, other kinds of personality uh, disorders. They also test higher on creativity. They test higher on intelligence. And so this is one fifth of the population. So we can't just ignore that for owls. The most important thing for owls is this. Your period of peak vigilance is later in the day, okay? Five, six, seven, nine p.m., right? And so if you're an owl out there, you want to make sure that you can do your heads down vigilant work in the late after, in, in the early evening in, into the evening. And this is one reason why a lot of owls opt out of certain kinds of professions and, and even certain kinds of work structures. Um, because they want that kind of customization in their own work. So if you're an owl, um, you gotta, I think it's for owls, it's really important that you look for a workplace that will, that will accommodate you. Uh, that doesn't say, Hey, wait a second. You're not going to, you don't want to be at your desk at eight 30 in the morning. What kind of slacker are you? Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's not enough to say, Oh, well, I'm an owl. I'm not a slacker. I don't think that's a winning argument. So you have to look for, you have to look for workplaces that accommodate that. Now the smart workplaces you see this especially in tech, are like, you know what? You want to work at 8 o'clock at night? That's cool. Go for it. Um, and so for the leaders out there, you have this population of owls that isn't treated very well by many workplaces. This is a great, great source of talent if you're willing to give them some discretion over when they can do their work. No, that's a really good word because, I, you know, as you were describing owls, both in the book and, and in this conversation, I'm thinking I'm not an owl, I'm the opposite. But if I was, I'm like, great, I can't have a meaningful job because I don't come alive right. until everybody goes home. Right. Uh, you can have a meaningful job at a place, the, 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 the minority of places that allow that. Or, as I was saying right. before, you go and you become, uh, you go and you become, uh, you go and you become self-employed. But again, so I actually think that we can look at this as, for leaders especially, we can look at this as an opportunity um, rather than a problem. So what we have here is we have this one-fifth of the workplace, one-fifth of the talent pool is not being treated well by traditional work arrangements. Hey, if my organization is going to change their work arrangements to accommodate these folks, then I'm going to have an edge attracting the best talent. One of the things I think that's we've all watched happen before our eyes is there's a work revolution happening. I mean, for many years during the Industrial Revolution, you know, means of production were tied to a factory, a building. Right. You had to be there at 7 a.m. whenever your shift started. You were basically chained to a machine until right. whenever you were done. And we kind of adopted that in the office in the 20th century, right? Work starts at 8. We're done at 4.30. Yep. You get a 15-minute break yep. and just sit there. Right. And again, computers were stationary. Right, like you yeah, kind of, you didn't right, have a computer exactly. in your pocket. You did, couldn't afford exactly. one at the house, so it was exactly. the you know commercial equivalent of an industrial uh, thing. But that's all changed. Everybody has their own devices now. You can work anywhere, anytime. You can do a podcast at a Starbucks in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Right. I mean, you can. Right. And and so, 
you know, our, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think this research is becoming even more important because so many of us have so much more freedom than we would have even a decade or two ago. Um, any thoughts on that and how the workplace's take is, is, is adopting and changing and what smart employers are doing now to equip and mobilize their workforce for the future? Yeah, I mean, I think you have it exact. I think you have it exactly right, and it, it, um, in that, you know, many elements of work have become customizable, and so the win of work is just another is another is another part of that. And I think that the the danger for organizations is that if they don't allow the win of work to become customizable, they're going to be losing out on large swaths of large swaths of of talent. Um, yeah. And the, the key here is really, as you say, to shake off this mentality that. That work can only get done between 8:30 and and, and 4:30. Now there is a, there, there's a lot of inequity in how people are treated at work. So um, um, and so we have to and and there's certain kinds of jobs that don't necessarily accommodate themselves to like let's say you know you're in retail and the store is open right. at nine o'clock. You got to have bodies in there at nine o'clock. But even then, what you should be doing if you're a smart employer is you should be putting your larks on the early morning shift. You should be putting your owls on the later shift. Right. And both Smart. sides are going to are going to accommodate are going to accommodate that right now. What you have is a boss just unilaterally saying, hey, you work here and you work here. Um, so if the boss actually takes into account those kinds of chronotypes, even in scheduling retail, you're going to have less attrition. Oh, that's a good point. If you're managing a coffee shop, doing retail yeah. or anything, you know, and you've got shifts, even in manufacturing, wouldn't it make sure. sense to have your morning people on the morning shift and your evening people, you know, have your owls doing that, or you're going to have less injuries, less workplace issues. That's super smart. Um, You cover some other issues in the book. I want to touch on them briefly before we wrap up. So you talk about team dynamics and in the science of when uh, a lot of people get off to a good start, then there's sort of a midpoint panic that happens. It's like, oh my goodness, we're halfway to the deadline. And then people kind of spurt through. I don't know if you had a chance to read it or not, but Adam Grant in his book Originals makes a similar argument about um, the most productive, the top performers. And he says, you know, the stereotype is everybody gets their work done early. You know, I'm done the report a month in advance or my my book is turned in three months before the publisher's deadline. He says, in reality, what happens is a lot of top performers start early and then they procrastinate. And then they use the last part of the deadline to push them toward heights and creativity and still get it done on time. What are you finding in, the, in, in that in terms of group dynamics and procrastination? Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting research from uh, Connie Gersick, uh, who was at UCLA, showing pretty much, pretty much that, that if you look at the pattern of how teams do their work, it is nonlinear. So at the beginning... Right. Um, People have enthusiasm, um, but at the beginning of a team project, uh, people are enthusiastic, and then you know people plan and they seek status and do all that, um, but they actually don't accomplish a huge amount of actual work. Uh, and the work really starts in the sudden burst of activity that seems to occur eerily at the midpoint. So if you yeah. give a team 21 days, they get started in earnest on day 11. Um, and so, and there's often when you look at the actual specifics of how the team works, there's someone you know raising their hand or offering up a time signal saying, oh my God, we squandered half of our time. We got to get going. Um, and so, um, and I, and so what we have to do with midpoints is, and midpoints are, are complicated, uh, is that, you know, sometimes midpoints can drag us down. Uh, other times they can fire us up. But the key, 
is to recognize midpoints. So if anything has a beginning and an end, by its nature, it has a midpoints. Midpoints are going to have an invisible effect on our behavior. Uh, again, sometimes they bring us down, sometimes they fire us up. Fire us up, but if you're a leader, you should make the midpoint salient. You should announce the midpoint because that can be galvanizing. And one of the things we know from a raft of research and sports and other things is that if people feel like at the midpoint they're slightly behind, then they really bring it. Hmm. What about endings, Dan? Oh, endings, again, endings have a huge effect on our behavior. Um, really, I think a really fascinating effect on our behavior. Uh, endings can help us energize in the same way. So when we get to the end of something, when the end of something becomes salient, sometimes we'll kick a little bit harder. Um, this is one reason why people disproportionately run first marathons at age 29, age 39, age 49, and age 59, because they're getting to the end of a decade, so they feel like they have to do something. So it's galvanizing. Um, it's one reason why interim deadlines can be effective. Um, uh, endings have a disproportionate effect on how we remember entire experiences. Um, and, you know, in general, uh, endings matter a lot. Endings matter significantly, actually, in how people remember entire experiences. And in general, we prefer endings that have a rising sequence rather than a declining sequence. So, um, so again, it comes back to, in, in, from the leaders out there, to be intentional about endings. How does a project, how project end? How does someone's tenure at your organization end? Because um, uh, 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 endings have a disproportionate weight than other elements of the episode. Can you say more about a rising sequence toward an ending rather than a declining sequence toward an ending? So one of the best examples of rising sequences and declining sequences is some of the research on uh, giving people delivering news. And so yeah. when we think about when we think about news, we sometimes say I've got good news and bad news. And so the question becomes, what do you deliver first, the good news or the bad news? And I was always someone who gave the good news first as a way to kind of soften the blow a little bit. And that's completely wrong. Uh, hmm. What we know from the research is that vast majority of people prefer to the bad news first and then the good news. And this is part of a larger preferences for rising sequences rather than declining sequences. Uh, so um, so we, we want, so, and, and that means, I, I don't want to say happy endings in the sort of Hollywood mm-hmm. Disneyfied sense, but basically sequences that go up rather than sequences that go down. So if you're giving good news and bad news, uh, give the good news first, turn the bad news first, and, and then the good news, bad, then good. Um, and this is also true in certain kinds of other sequential things that we do when you um, lay out a set of options. Sometimes the last option can be more appealing if it has a rising sequence of it. But again, as I've, as I've said, you know, 37 times, because this is really the key, it's like it's a matter of being intentional about it. And we're less, we're not very intentional about how we end projects, how we end tenures at companies, how we end conversations how we end encounters. And if we're intentional about that ending, we can get more done. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about your book, Dan, is how practical, how well-researched it is. I guess that's two things I appreciate about it. And I really also (laughs) appreciate your time. Uh, You've been extremely generous with us. People are going to want to find out more about you. Obviously, you can get When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, anywhere you can buy books. But uh, what's an easy place for them to connect with you online? Just, just check out my website, which is uh, danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. So all kinds of free resources, new email newsletter, other groovy stuff. You've been so helpful today, Dan. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, I love this interview. Honestly, I love nerding out on stuff like that. And Dan was great in being willing to chat 
and get into the nuances of the secret and the science behind perfect timing. So his book is called When. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. Links to everything we talked about are in the show notes, including, guys, transcripts. You asked for them. You got them. Every episode for the last few months has got transcripts. So if you're a reader, you want to share it with your team, they are downloadable. All right. So just head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 233. You'll find everything there. Or just search Daniel's name and my name and it'll pop up from the Googles. So, hey, uh, next week we're back with a fresh episode. Tell you about that in just a second because I'm very excited about it. Um, In the meantime... If you are looking for better strategy for 2019, please make sure you check out what our partners are offering. Red Letter Challenge is helping small and large churches dive into the into the teachings of Jesus and also really see a huge growth, a spike in small group, worship attendance, online strategy. Go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry for more. And push pay, guys, seriously, what's your mobile strategy? You need one. And digital giving, about 80% of our giving right now at Connexus is digital. It makes a huge difference. Head on over to pushpay.com forward slash carry and uh, sign up today, or at least have a conversation with the guys, okay? This could be a breakthrough year for you, and that's what I'm cheering for, which leads us to the next couple of episodes. So we are in the church space, in the business space on this podcast, but I'm going to do a deep dive into the church space. And you know what? I've, I've heard a growing number of business leaders say, yeah, I know church leaders always say we have a lot to learn from business, but business leaders are increasingly saying we have a lot to learn from the church. I mean, let's be honest. Businesses pay their employees Church leaders don't. You got to motivate people. Like it's a it's a crazy complex leadership task. And the next couple of episodes on this podcast are pretty exciting because I talked to Donnie Griggs and Donnie is all about how to make a big difference in a small town. We have a fascinating conversation, what works, what doesn't in small communities because honestly the churches are going dark like they're they're dying in small communities. How to find great leaders there and even multi-site like rural multi-site is becoming a thing. And then we have another episode coming up with uh, John Van Pay, and he uh, in 2017 was the or is still the lead pastor of the fastest growing church in America, and he's going to talk about how to be home five nights a week, how to find margin amidst growth, and how to say no to stay focused. Fascinating. You can do all those things and grow a church. And then coming up, I talked to Jonathan Pokluda. It was a fascinating conversation because we're going to talk about the fastest growing and largest young adults ministry in America. Uh, Literally tens of thousands of people engaged in the porch. And we'll talk about the key to the millennial and Gen Z mind. I've also got Lisa Turkers, David Kinnaman, John Gordon, Gary Chapman, Frank Beeler, Judd Wilhite. So much more coming up for 2019. Oh, did I mention John Ortberg as well? Uh, Ed Stetzer, Tyler Reagan. Yeah. If you guys haven't subscribed yet, do so. It'll automatically appear on your devices on release day. And I appreciate you guys so much. Just a quick little uh, reminder before we go, because you listen to the end. It is a free giveaway week, 7 million downloads and counting. Crazy. So we're giving away free Starbucks every single day this week. So you can simply follow me on the socials, all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, at Twitter and Facebook. It's just C. Newhoff and we're giving away, well, about a hundred bucks of Starbucks every day. So if you're in line and the notification comes up that we just loaded a card, you can buy your nice little holiday cheer uh, for yourself. 
And uh, yeah, that's good anywhere in North America. So really excited for that, guys. And thank you again. Thanks for being so awesome. And of course, we're going to see you next week. But uh, all this week we're celebrating. So follow on the socials if you want to play along and get some free holiday cheer. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.